What's up, bingers? You heard from her partner in true crime podcasting last week, and today she's here to chat about their other fascinating podcast, Direct Appeal. She has a PhD in criminology, and she can pick apart a case better than most. Please welcome Dr. Megan Sachs. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. So do you and Amy ever record in the same place or are you always remote like this? No, I mean, we definitely try to record together. She'll come to my place to the studio. But, you know, when COVID was like out of control and, and because she has she has childcare issues and stuff. And so her mother-in-law was like, I'm not helping with the kids if you go anywhere. So, I mean, <laughs> right. we record together, but I can't tell you how many COVID tests have been taken. It's just like ridiculous. So when we can, we record together. But once in a while, we right. now have to do it via Zoom which is not fun for her because she doesn't have a studio in her house. So her closet becomes her studio. Right. Uh, very common, I found, in the true crime space, people recording in their closets. I couldn't do that. Like, I need the space of the studio and all the, the sounds and everything. Like, I need everything to be perfect for me. But yeah, so right. <laughs> we do. We actually wind up doing more. It's not even recording sessions. We wind up doing more of our ads that way. Because when they're ads, you know, you have to update them. Like, every two weeks, they send a new, like, call to action. You're like, oh, man, <laughs> you know. So right. it's not the best. I love it when we get the 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 refresh on like a dynamic and they send you to refresh and you look at it. It's like it's the same copy. But it's they, the same they, copy. They change like two words. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how long have you guys been making podcasts? Ah, we started our first podcast probably two years ago, and that was Direct Appeal. So I think we launched Direct Appeal in 2019. God, I have to look and make sure that's right. <laughs> okay. And, and as I was listening to Direct Appeal, your first season, it seemed like it wasn't that long into it when you guys launched your other podcast, Women in Crime. Well, what happened is we actually launched Women in Crime pretty much right after Direct Appeal. And um, so we, we did Direct Appeal 2019 to th 2020, and then we launched Women in Crime in 2020. And, you know, we hadn't, we didn't know that we were going to start another podcast, but what happened is all these people were writing into us after direct appeal or during direct appeal saying, you need to look at this case. It's a woman. You know, they were all writing with female centered cases and like female centered issues saying, can you look at this case? Can you check out this case? I want to know what you guys think about this. And we just started to accumulate. I started to make a list, right? And there was like this long list. And so I just sat down one day. I'm like, why don't we just do a podcast on women and crime? I mean, I teach this. People are so interested. They want to know about the the factors that affect, you know, female victimization and what goes into female offending. So kind of came about organically that we decided to do um, a podcast devoted to just women and crime. And that was totally, you know, that's something separate. But yeah, we launched really quickly after Direct Appeal. Yeah. And I have uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm interviewing Amy to talk about that show. Uh, but but how do you guys how did you guys get come to you went from zero podcast to two podcasts very quickly <laughs> so, so how does that because you're both you know I I have written in my notes you know that 
or, or on my my Zoom thing here that this is Megan Sachs, but it's actually Dr. Megan Sachs that you have a PhD in criminology, which is very impressive. So how do you go from from that that you're doing all this work and you're an author and you've done tons of work and it's been published all over the place to launch it to, to taking that to launching not only one but two podcasts. It's an odd story. Again, it didn't it wasn't like an idea I had like, oh, I want to be a podcaster because I just didn't come up with that idea. But how it worked was that we as as criminologists um, in New Jersey, we actually get a lot of mail from offenders. And, you know, Amy works with offenders in prisons. She teaches, you know, offenders. So she's, you know, one on one. I work with offenders in that um, I work with them in like writing. They write for my books. They tell their stories. And I have a lot of contact with different types of offenders. And we get letters all the time. People who think maybe there's something we can do. Maybe they even confuse us for a lawyer. They just want to tell their story to someone who's interested. And so what really happened was that a lot of people started mentioning this the case to us, uh, Melanie McGuire, and she's the focus of Direct Appeal 1. It came from a couple of my colleagues to a couple of students who interned in the um, Edna Man prison. And I just kept hearing this name over and over again. And people were saying, like, she, you know, she's, she has a lot of support for innocence, and she's really looking for someone to tell her story to. And I'm like, well, I mean, I was, I, my interest was piqued in her case, also because I teach women in crime and because I've used her case as an example. As an example of, by the way, guilt. So... I was peaked. And- yeah, I can't wait to get into that part of it because <laughs> <laughs> if you read her Wikipedia page, she's guilty as hell. So I guilty, really want to dig into guilty. And I went in. I went in thinking the same thing. To be honest, um, I was just interested. I can't explain what interested me more. Maybe it was just hearing it over and over again. And so I decided to um, have a call with someone from her family, and you know, I started talking to her family, to her friends, and eventually she invited me to come to the prison and meet with her. And I was like, all right, I'll go. I mean, I had no plan, Bob. Like, literally, this was just, all right, let's go see how what happens. And after I left that meeting, I was like, this is interesting, like really interesting. And I have to, I have to know more. I have to do more. And so I went back for another meeting and we continued to talk. And I had said it to, I think, Amy and probably to our producer, James. I was like, I, this is a really interesting story, but I don't know what to do with it. Like, do I write a book? Do I write an article? Do I do nothing? Is it's at her story? And James said to me, "Why don't you do a podcast?" And I was like, "Oh man, I don't know how to do a podcast. Are you kidding me?" And he was like, "We'll do it." <laughs> I said, "I have no clue. I, I just started listening to them." And so he said, "We'll just we'll take it step by step, and I'll, I'll tell you how to do it." And Amy was already so deep deeply in love with the podcast world that um she was helpful as well. I had no clue what to do. I just started writing down the story and and we went from there, really. We baby stepped it the whole way. Yeah, I mean, everybody's doing it. Everybody's making podcasts. Why not make a podcast? I'll tell you what, though, if I knew how much work it was going to be and what the work was going to entail, <laughs> I don't know if I would have, like, if you had told me on day one, I might have been like, you know what, I'm just going to write a book. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's probably a little more work than most people think it is. And along those lines, so your your guys' production's great. You're, all the way from episode one, you guys have your your production quality is very good. Thank on you. Direct appeal. Thank you. Which is not super common. Most of us figure it out, you know, along along the way. So, so how did did any of you did did you said it was your boyfriend as your producer? Yeah, my boyfriend James. Yeah does does he have a background? Oh yeah, he had a video production company at one point, so he's um tech technical. He knows editing. He knows software. There was still a learning curve for him because of its podcast and it's, you know, a different um, 
a different outlet than he was used to, but he definitely has more technical prowess. So he was able to start us off in a better place than I think other people. Well, he, d- he did a really nice job and, um, and it just continues to be great as, as you go through the season. Thank um, you. We also, li- sorry, we also had a studio at first. That was the difference. So with Direct Appeal, we had a studio. It was not a great studio, to be honest. We had a lot of issues, but James and um, with the help of uh, another sound mixer, they were able to get the, the quality much better. And then when we started Women in Crime, we just built our own studio. Nice. So I want to know a little bit, a little bit about you. I, said, I, I know that you, you have your PhD. You're a criminalist. How, how did you get there? Were you always interested in that field and true crime? Uh, was that something that you you figured out later? Like, what did you do right out of high school? Well, so I loved criminal law because my mom used to let me stay up late and watch bad shows with her, like L.A. Law when I was a kid. And I swear, I fell in love with it. I was like, I'm going to be a prosecutor. And I never, that that like interest never left. I was always interested in criminal law. But out of college, I went and worked at a boring law firm, like as a paralegal doing paper documents and editing and things like that. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is not, no, no, no. Um, And so I randomly went to an open house for a master's program in criminal justice, and that was at John Jay College. And I just loved it. And so I went, I got my master's while I was working. It was like so quick. And I had a professor there. He was this old, like, beloved, kind of cranky, old, but loving, (laughs) you know, um, professor who used to call me by my last name. And he said, Sachs, you have to take the probation test, US probation. That's where you got to go. And I went, well, okay, I got to figure out something to do after this. So I went and took the US probation test and I, I did well. And they called me in for an interview and I wound up getting a job as a federal probation officer. And so that was really my start uh, of like the career in criminal justice. Um, so I worked in the Southern District in New York as um, a pre-sentence investigator. I was the person who would investigate someone's crimes in the federal court and then make a sentence recommendation to the judge. And I did that for just a little over three years. I probably worked on about, I don't know, about 100 to 125 federal cases. And um, I liked the job a lot, but I didn't like the system. I worked in it and I could see like all the flaws and I could see like we were just, I, I thought we would be getting, you know, these these really high level criminals because we, we were federal and whatnot. And the truth is, most of the time, you just got low-level drug carriers, and then they were stuck in prison for so long. I felt the system was just too flawed to work within it for 25 years. And so I just applied for a PhD program, just one. I, I kind of threw my eggs in one basket and you know, hoped for the best, hoped that I would get in and that I could you know, maybe research, write, and do something to help kind of correct the system. So then did you continue to work once you had your PhD? in law enforcement at all? Or did you go right from that to your kind of teaching career? No, I went right from that to my teaching career. The PhD took about four years to do. And I mean, you can't work doing anything else when you're doing that full time. You just have to devote all your kind of time to that. And then afterwards, I knew I I was on the fence, actually. I kind of thought about going back to law enforcement. I was still young enough that I could get back in. But then there was a great opportunity to build a program, a criminology program from scratch design it. And I was really interested in designing my own program. And so that was the job I went for. And that's the job I wound up getting um, at Fairleigh Dickinson University as the the first criminology director. That's awesome. And then you and Amy both teach a whole number of classes at the university, right? Yes. So I was there first. And two years later, I hired Amy. And we actually knew each other from John Jay College. We went 
we both went through the program, but she was two years behind me, so we didn't know each other that well. And, but when she applied for a job, it was funny, when she applied for a, a job at FDU, in my head, I had it that I was going to hire someone very different in research and interest than myself. And I wound up hiring Amy, who has very similar, you know, but I just, I, she was just great. She was just, she was just perfect. She was a perfect fit for us at FDU. And we worked so well together. So the two of you, when you, when you make this podcast, uh, it sounds like, so was it your idea? Because it came from your boyfriend to turn into a podcast. So now your your boyfriend tells you this this needs to be a podcast. You decide I'm going to make a podcast. And now at some point you get your friend and coworker Amy as a as a co-host. What was that process? James asked me, "What do you think you would need to make a podcast?" And I was like, I mean, I I have a lot to learn. So I'm like, I obviously need to learn every single bit of the process. I was like, but the other thing I need, I was like, I need Amy. Because Amy and I, in our natural in our natural environment, all we do, or not all we do, but a lot of what we do is talk about um, cases, and we bounce ideas off each other. And what do you think about the process of this? I mean, we do we sit in our office going back and forth debating these issues, and sometimes not falling on the same side of the debate. But I just knew that I would need someone, um, and especially her, to be able to go back and forth with, and and as a check and a you know kind of a check and a balance. And to have really uh, meaningful discussion about these important issues. By listening to you, it sounds as though your entire world revolves around criminology and all of these cases. So the last thing I want to delve into your personal life before we start talking about this case is, what do you do for fun? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you actually nailed it. I'm not going to lie. You, you're, you're right. Uh, <laughs> a lot of my world revolves around work. And I, but I love my work, so I, I can't say it's like a bad thing. Uh, you know, I, I actually James, James had said to me, turned on the TV a couple weeks ago, and goes, "Oh, look at this! We have other channels besides ID in our house." And I went, "Okay, <laughs> <laughs> point taken." Um, but we uh, we do we do a lot of escapes. So we do a lot of cabin escapes. To be honest, that's probably my favorite thing. Is uh, once or twice a month we find a new place to go. Um, so we take the dog. We run the dog, we, we kind of hike, we ski. I mean, I'm not the best skier, but I would tell you that I like to escape to like remote places uh, very uh, frequently when I can um, to enjoy just like the outside and being away from it all. So we're in the city and we're in Jersey City and it, we're kind of in the, the midst of, we're always, you know, busy, 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 let's put it that way. So when, um, when we slow the pace down, we slow it down completely. We get out there, we cook, we enjoy nature. But most of the time, it's true crime all the time. True crime all the time. Sounds like a podcast. I think it is a podcast, actually. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It was taken. Too bad that name was taken. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Well, Direct Appeal is a a perfect title, uh, especially with your first season's case. Uh, As you said, you cover the the case of uh, Melanie McGuire. And real quick, so you said she wrote to you. I was When I was listening to your first episode, I think I kind of got it, but... Because, you know, I, I get that process because doing what I do on my other show on Truth and Justice, you know, we investigate wrongful convictions. I get piles of jail mail every day. I've got lawyers writing to me. We have submission forms on our website. So we get cases thrown at us all the time. Mm-hmm. When you said when the, you, you get all these letters, is that based off of your book? Or I, how do these – I know how the inmates that are reaching out to me for help, how they know who I am, especially after being on like 2020 and some things like that. So how did how did Melanie know to reach out to you? Melanie didn't reach out to me. People reached out on her behalf. Um, so it was colleagues and other people. 
You know, I have to be honest, though, the other people who reach out, I think it's there's a lot of word of mouth. Believe it or not, New Jersey is pretty small in terms of prisons. Like I go into Rahway prison a lot or Northern State and I meet with the lifers group. And so they know me. And so they'll tell other people, oh, you should reach out to Sachs if you have a question about this. It's actually, I swear to you, a lot of word of mouth in New Jersey, believe it or not. I'm sure some people, um, you know, can find us in terms of like looking for criminology or criminal, you know, criminal justice professors. But I think most of the reason that offenders write to me, especially because they come from New Jersey, is word of mouth. Now, that's different now because we've done some media stuff. So now it's it's we're out there. But before, yeah, New Jersey's just a smaller place than you even think. Yeah. And actually, that does make sense because I get that within prisons. You know, if I'm helping an inmate in a particular prison, I work in Texas a lot. I can't seem to get out of Texas ever. I'm back in Texas again this season. Um, That's because there's a lot of criminal justice there. (laughs) Right, right. But if if I'm helping somebody in one of those units, then I will. I'll get bombarded with letters from yep. other people. Word gets around when they, you know, they find out that they're that they've got somebody helping them. And we have a volunteer transcription team that actually transcribes our episodes on Truth and Justice and sends it oh, to the good. inmates to read. And oh, then, that's good. of course, you know, they're always lacking reading material. So it sounds like they said they you know, they read it and then it gets passed around the whole unit where everybody gets to read what's going on. Absolutely, you get it. I mean, that's exactly how that's exactly how it happens. Which is fine. I mean, these are people who are, and you probably realize that a lot of these people are, you know, desperate. They're alone. No one cares about their situation. So it's like anyone who will just give them a little bit of attention and like, you know, show some interest too. Um, They're, they're, they're excited and grateful for it. So when you started Direct Appeals, um, I keep calling Direct Appeals, but it's Direct Appeal, right? No S at the end. Direct, no S at the end. Right. When you started Direct Appeal, what was your goal? What was your mission? So you, 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 you look at Melanie's case, you decide you're going to tell that story on a podcast. What was the purpose? Well, in your mind, what was your, you, you, you seem to be, we, we share a similar personality to where you, it seems like you probably had an end goal in mind or you wouldn't have started the project. Absolutely. I'm not, um, you know, I like storytelling and I like explaining things, but I'm not a storyteller. That's, that, the purpose was The purpose legitimately was twofold. One, to figure out, to investigate and figure out, is this a wrongful conviction? Meaning, is she really innocent? And on the second note, we also like the process. So even if this, maybe we we don't conclude it's a wrongful conviction, did she receive a fair trial? Was there fair due process? Those were our two goals. Figure those two out, what we can conclude to the best of our abilities. I mean, hey, I would have liked to solve this thing exactly. You know, the feeling of, okay, we got a tip. We busted it wide open. But in reality, it doesn't happen like that. So those were our two goals when we started. Okay. So you, you, you start the show. Now, I'm going to kind of – normally, I have, I have our, our guests kind of break down our case of the week and um, give us kind of the beats of the case. But I want to do things a little bit differently here just from what I know about it, which is from listening to as much of your podcast as I could get in from the time we decided we were going to do this until we recorded and, and just doing some online research. So uh, the victim in this case, his name is Bill McGuire. It's Melanie's husband. And um, on April 28th, if I understand correctly, they had been married for five years. They've got two kids. They had just bought a house, like literally closed on a house on that day, getting ready to move, I, I assume, in the next day or two after that. Um, he is uh, appears to have been drugged, shot, dismembered, put into suitcases, and thrown into, into the ocean. Now, 
that that's kind of some basics of it. But as I was going through, this this is one of those changed my mind. So as I'm reading on the interwebs, which is where all uh, accurate information lives, um, <laughs> there was a <laughs> there's <Sorry>. a. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, is that not true? <laughs> oh, that was good. Okay. But but these he's just here's some quick elements of guilt or that was that was put up by the prosecution as elements of guilt. There was, you know, two days after the murder, Melanie is caught on surveillance camera moving Bill's car. I don't know if it was a casino or what, it was in Atlantic City, uh, which she says was for some kind of prank. Uh, but then we find out that she has filed a personal protective order, a restraining order against Bill prior to this for a, a, a slapping incident. She had bought a thirty-two or thirty-eight caliber gun and wad cutter bullets uh, a couple days before the murder, and he was killed with thirty-eight caliber wad cutters. Apparently, she was having she, the prosecution at least alleges she's having an affair with a coworker. They've got her Easy Pass tag that shows two days after the murder she's in Delaware. There's uh, the the plastic bag that the body was found in. Forensics say match a roll in her house, the, and there was a the luggage that the body parts were found in supposedly matched a set that they had at their house that was missing bags, and uh, the towel that was found uh, was also the same type as they had in their house. So I'm reading all that. It seems like she's guilty. Changed my mind. Okay, it looks pretty bad. I read everything you did, just so you know, and I went in like guilty. Right, right, right. Yeah, for me, the problem was the uh, the really the problem was the the lack of a crime scene and the ridiculous nature of the um, story the prosecution told about how she killed her husband in the house. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. No one ever disputed that Melanie and Bill closed on that house and they went home together that evening. Um, and she never left, and that's not in really in dispute. They had two small children. She was really, you know, the primary caretaker. She put them to bed. She did. She did a lot of the, you know, day-to-day stuff. And what the prosecution alleges is that that night she drugged Bill. She shot him in this townhome, a townhome that they share, uh, by, by the way, four walls with other people. And that after she shot him, she dismembered him in the bathtub in their home. And then she exsanguinated him. So she drained his blood, which is something you don't learn because they said she's a nurse. She can do that. I mean, we we went and spoke to a number of people who said, you know, even the most skilled surgeon can't do that. The only people who can really do that are funeral directors or, you know, um, people who specialize in that. So then she exsanguinated him um, or exsanguinated him first and cut up his body. And then somehow she put them into suitcases. And then at first, the story was that she drove his body parts, you know, the next day. Um, but then the story kind of changed because the medical examiner said, you know, his legs looked fresh. So then it became, well, she probably put his um, body parts on ice in her house for several days to refrigerate them and then drove them several days later. And how, how old are the kids? Kids were two and four at the time. So they're young. They're small children. So I guess for me, I went, okay, wait, wait. At first I heard the story and I went, this doesn't make sense. Like this is, this is really a, you know, a stretch of the imagination, but l- let me see, let's investigate this. So I looked into, deep into the, you know, the forensics. And the fact of the matter is that they couldn't find anything in her house. There was no tissue, there's no liquids, there's no blood. They ripped out the drains to see. And I'm like, okay, well, if she, I mean, if she really cut his body up in bath parts, those drains are going to contain materials, right? Nothing. 
no material. All the drains came out. They, you know, looked for blood. There was no blood. They even checked like her water bill because they were like, well, if we can show that she used more water on that week, you know what I mean? We could at least say like, look, nothing. Everything was exactly as it should have been. So that was the first thing for me. I went, well, uh, how did she kill him in the house and not leave one speck of anything? And then I talked to a surgeon. I got like the head of surgery on because I was like, let me talk about what it's like to saw through bone. And is this possible? And I mean, after hearing the descriptions of what it's like to saw through bone and how unrealistic it was that there would be not one speck of tissue anywhere. And, you know, I spoke to a firearms expert who said, come on, someone's going to hear, even you know, an expert, someone's going to hear that. She doesn't have a silencer. You're going to get one person. That's going to make a loud boom. And he said they should have recreated that. And so then I started to go, oh, wow, this, you know, this seems unlikely that this happened. And for me, that was the real starting point, which started to crack my confidence. It's because everything seemed like, you know, it all fit so perfectly. But then when I looked at it, I went, but how did she actually do this? She did not. I, I can tell you, I, I don't know what happened. And I don't know if Melanie is, has any involvement for sure. Could I say 100% no? But I can tell you that Melanie did not kill her husband in her household. All I can say is that I began to doubt the prosecution's case when I realized the incredible unlikelihood that this crime could have happened in Melanie's home. And if Melanie's not committing this crime in her home, where did it happen? How, how did this happen? She was there, home with the kids all night, pretty much till about 5 a.m. And that's where we can pick up her, we can trace her whereabouts going forward. So what happened in that time? I, I can't see how this could have happened. The way the prosecution said, you know, that's what interesting. One thing, one question I didn't ask you that would be worth explaining is, as a as a criminalist or a criminologist, can you explain what that job entails? Because like what I'm hearing from you, like that's this is the work that I do, right? I'm not a lawyer, like you're not a lawyer, not a cop, but you're 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 looking at practical elements of the case and and trying to piece it back together. So how would you describe your actual job as a, as a criminalist? So I'm not a criminalist. That's, I, criminalists would be more technical. So they would do more of the forensics. Now, I do know about forensics, but I can't actually do the science part of forensics. I evaluate forensic work. I know, you know the reliability of DNA. As a criminologist, we do a couple of things. We A, criminologists seek to explain the causes of crime through biological, psychological, and sociological um, avenues. So we first examine the causes of crime. And we also examine the criminal justice response to crime. And so we evaluate what parts of the criminal justice system are flawed, what parts are wrong, what parts are strong, and how do we reform the system. So we kind of start at the beginning and work our way to the end. And in doing so, we specialize in certain areas, though. For instance, Amy really specializes in wrongful convictions. And so she can tell you every single bit of, of you know, um, the evidence that it incorrectly goes into, let's say, a wrongful conviction or the process that leads to it. So we can evaluate forensic evidence, but we can't actually practice it. You know, I couldn't go into a lab and, and tell you um, how to, you know, how to do luminol or how to run DNA. But I can tell you everything that you need to know about um, whether or not those uh, processes and, and things are, you know, working. It's interesting, and it seems like splitting hairs, but there is a big difference. Like I, I really appreciate like the mindset that goes into what a criminologist does, right? Uh, because you know, uh, police officers, they should be gathering evidence and using the evidence to then form, uh, form theories and then test the theories against more evidence. 
But, you know, once they get to a point where they've identified who their person is, then their work is to find evidence to prove that person's guilty. That's their job. Same with the prosecutor. A defense investigator is doing the opposite, right? They're trying to find yeah. evidence to prove that they're innocent. Whereas a criminologist is is really just looking at the entire thing, go back to ground zero and and figure out. And what I really like is the part that you were just mentioning in this case is the practicality. Like, okay, if we you can throw up those items of evidence, like I like like I did, and say, look at all this, she's guilty. That's a that's what a cop does, right? That's their job. But then to start looking through and say, okay, but when we start putting the pieces of this puzzle together, it doesn't actually fit the way they're saying it fits. There's something missing. There's there's something in the process there that's that's wrong. And already, just you know, I've listened to a lot of the podcasts, so I knew knew some of this. But that's a great point. I just gave what seemed like an open and shut case, but what with what you just told me, it seems like she couldn't have killed her husband in her house. No, there's there's just no way. And she didn't exsanguinate him either. I mean, you you have to like really think about what what they're saying she did in this you know time period by herself in her house in her home with her two children and with sharing four walls. And I I should say also later on you know they didn't cover all the ground, but you know Melanie talked about that night and she tells a story about this fight that they had for hours and it went on and you know everyone said well we couldn't find anyone to support it. We we talked to the neighbors and we couldn't find anyone. Turns out they missed a neighbor and they went back months later. And though she couldn't recall exactly when, she said, I remember a fight around that time between a man and woman, someone I share a wall with, and they were yelling at each other for hours into the early morning. She said, I didn't hear a gunshot, but I sure heard it, a lengthy fight. And it, it also entailed something like, we've been married for five years and this is what you do to me. Now, this is also an important piece of the puzzle, never presented at trial. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. Melanie bought a gun, and so that looks really bad, and Melanie's version is that, well, Bill was a felon, and he really wanted a gun, and he asked me to get it for him. And you go like, come on, really? You know, that's that's a stretch. Well, then what happens is you have a guy come forward who used to work with Bill. He has no relation to Melanie, in fact, doesn't dislike Bill, and says, well, I just want to be honest. Bill told me about, you know, a month or two before the murder that he actually wanted a gun, but he couldn't get one because of his record. And so his wife was going to get one for him. And you go, oh, well, God, okay. Is she maybe telling the truth on this? You know, that that's weird. Like, if, if that's not true, that's a weird coincidence. Right. And then you look at the prescription for chloral hydrate that supposedly he was slipped a drug. But when they went through and did the testing on him, there was no drug found in his system. And you go, okay, was that even related to this? Was that maybe chloral hydrate for another reason? You know, you've seen cases where people actually abuse chloral hydrate. I mean, you know, Anna Nicole Smith and other people. Um, So is it possible that that's unrelated? So all the evidence that, for me, all the evidence that initially made her look extremely guilty, I found could be interpreted very differently if you looked at it objectively, I guess. Right, there's certainly more than one explanation for a lot of the elements that were brought up. And one explanation could be that, you know, it's because she killed her husband. Yep. But there's also, you know, other other ways that those could be explained. One thing that I was wondering as I as I was going through the case and and learning it is okay, the question we always ask that you know when I when I work on wrongful convictions. Well, if not this person then who? Mm. Did you do much work in studying into Bill's victimology. Did he have any other risk factors? Did, did he have anybody he with a grudge that could have done something like this? 
So we did a, we did as much as we could do um, later on, and uh, I admit it could we could have we I would have liked to have done more. Let's put it that way. Also with very limited resources for our first time, and you know limited resources. But Bill was at risk. Um, he was, in fact, um, unfortunately, he was, and his his friends would describe him this way, an abrasive kind of guy. Um, he did get into disagreements with people, um, with authority figures. He had a long, you know, history of, I know this is not exactly indicative of, of really his involvement in certain activities, but he had this long history of driving infractions where he would speed. He had like 30 something infractions and he would get into arguments with the officers. You know, he lied under oath. Unfortunately, and we don't mean this to, this is not, uh, not trying to dirty him up, but he did also have a history of forgery and, and perjury. Um, so he, he's got some factors. He also, uh, like her, and, and not, not casting any blame on him, but he also did have extramarital affairs. Um, he was a gambler. So yeah, he, he definitely had risk factors that would put him at risk for other people. I think once they found out Melanie was having the affair, though, that was their, you know, that's when they honed in on her because she was the, having the long-term affair. But he, he did have risk factors for sure. Well, and also always just just uh, as an aside, it seems like in the in our criminal justice system that a woman having an affair is I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but jurors tend to consider that as negative evidence much more than they do if it's a man having an affair. I teach women in crime, so I can tell you when women commit crimes or offenses or other acts that violate their gender roles. They tend to be punished more harshly by us. Um, so if they're doing something that violates what we think is a proper, you know, woman behavior or female behavior, they're looked at more negatively than males, for sure. You nailed it. Yeah, and I've I've seen that in in a lot of cases. You know, the for me, you know, because part part of your job as a criminologist is you uh, you study behavior. I don't know how much you do with with really like profiling crime scenes and things like that, but. What's your thoughts on the behavior displayed in this crime scene? Because for me, looking at it it, it, it seems apparent to me that this is this wasn't obviously a random killing. This was someone that knew him, that had a grudge with him, that had a reason to hide the body, conceal it, and 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 get it away. It doesn't seem like this. It, certainly, a stranger didn't do this. That was just my take on the little bit I knew. What, what's your What's your thoughts on the behavior displayed in this crime? Do you mean by uh, the crime or the crime scene? Sorry, you said the crime scene. So I'm trying to, uh, are you thinking about like when his body was collected or just throughout the whole, like the way he was murdered? Yeah, everything from the, you know, the way he was murdered and the, and the, um, the dismemberment and the efforts put into concealing the body, you know, by putting in the suitcases and putting it in the, in the, in the water like that. Right. I would tend to agree with you that it was probably someone that he knew um, the efforts to conceal. If it was a stranger, they might've killed him and just left him. Um, no reason to hide anything. If there's no forensic evidence, you don't need to conceal. So you're right. People, uh, there was some confusion about a couple of people, or I should say a lot of people wrote in saying that, you know, this was an attempt to desecrate him, to defile him, to uh, make him, you know, it was a heinous act, the dismemberment of the body. I think there's some confusion. While it is awful, because, you know, if you're the relative and you find out that you're you know, brother has been dismembered. This is an awful offense, right? But the purpose is not, it's not to um, be any more heinous or it's not anger. The purpose is just for body removal and disposal. 
Um, so it's a practical purpose that that serves, but you're right, it's concealment. Um, so yes, I would agree with you that this was someone he knew. I don't know that I would say that it means that he knew this person as well as he knew Melanie. It could just be what I what we concluded was probably he did know this person at some level, whether it be a superficial level or something more. Somebody did not want you to find this body at all. Right. Yeah, I I 100% agree. And I also agree with you, you know, whether it was, you know, ritualistic or was to desecrate the body. I, I, I think that, you know, the behavior of doing that speaks in, in the amount of effort we know that, that it would take to do that, to dismember him in the way that they did. And to, and to be able to fit him into three suitcases, I think it also probably speaks to a location where he, he wasn't he wasn't killed somewhere out in the country where a body could be thrown in a tarp. And well, he was killed somewhere where the the body needed to be moved past a place where people could see you moving the body. I would think because there's got to be a reason so. I mean, to go that much effort. There's a reason to put the body in suitcases for sure. You're right; it's a concealment effort. But I would argue that. The idea, again, that it, this happened in someone's apartment is also unrealistic. I think this was more likely to happen um, in my in my conclusion. I, I concluded that there was something involving a possible slaughterhouse or some other type of remote location or outdoor location. With his body, there was a ton of animal hair found. Um, so he's exsanguinated. So all the blood is drained from him. He's cut into, you know, unfortunately, he's cut into three pieces um, or segmented his body into three um, different suitcases. And there's a lot of animal hair found. So I'm going to say this is someone, I think this is someone who either is, you know, um, slaughterhouse, butcher, hunter, someone who's around animals and has a space for this. Even though you're right, it couldn't, couldn't be the most remote place where you don't need to go past anyone because there has to be a reason to put the body in suitcases. Right. But then again, you make a great point that if it's, say, he's killed in, like you said, a slaughterhouse, then all of a sudden, then it makes all kinds of sense because there's bone saw. They, yeah, that's what, that's how they, you know, they drain the blood out of yep. cows and pigs. Yep. There's bone saws there. It would be no big deal to go through. It wouldn't be the effort that we're talking about if it's done in someone's house. It's a whole different game changer. And it also explains why there is a, a mixture of all different types of animal hair because. Melanie and no one in her family, that was one of the things that the prosecutor hammered them in the grand jury. Who has an animal? Who has dogs? Who has this? <laughs> Nobody did. Um, and there was too much animal hair to explain by just someone's, you know, if it was in Melanie's house, that certainly the animal hair would be unexplained because those garbage bags were also sealed. So I think this definitely happened somewhere where there were other animals. That's, re that's really interesting. Did, did, the, did the victimology, I'm sure the, as often they don't, Law enforcement and certainly not the prosecution would really look into any victimology. But was there any anyone identified that could fit that profile? No, none whatsoever. But they really didn't have other suspects other than Melanie, to be perfectly honest. Right. Well, that's what I mean. Once once the prosecutors look, and I know they're they're not looking for other people that might have done it. They they don't want bad evidence, right? So they're only looking for evidence to support their case. All they looked to find at that point was who in Melanie's life was it? Her family was it? Her mother was it? Her father who had animals. And they just couldn't locate anyone who did. So one nagging question for me is, was there ever or did you come up with an, with an explanation or did anyone come up with an explanation for the matching luggage for the house? Because that's, that's a pretty hard hurdle to get over. Yeah. So the luggage, um, I'll just tell you what Melanie offered and whether or not this is true. I don't know. It, it depends on whether or not you believe Melanie. Uh, they had suitcases and garbage bags and everything was in disarray in their house because they were packing. They were moving. 
And so they were packing all of this, uh, basically all of the stuff. She said they both had garbage, per- purchased garbage bags, and they both had them in their cars and in the house because they were packing and moving stuff into the cars. Her explanation for the luggage would be simply that I didn't see the luggage. I don't know if it was in Bill's car. I also, you know, as she said, she proffered that he, he, when they got in a fight, he left. He packed stuff and left. She goes, I don't know if he took the suitcases. They might have been in his car. They might have been, you know, there. He might have packed some other stuff in them or he might have taken them with him. That would be her explanation. And so that's the only explanation. That is the only explanation that would make any sense is if Bill had the garbage bags and suitcases in his car because they were moving or because he actually packed those suitcases as he left her. There's really no other, there's no alternative explanation for that. The only alternative explanation is that Melanie killed him or gave whoever, someone else, the suitcases to help pack him. God, well, this, it's an extremely interesting case and it's it's very complex. Um, and you guys have wrapped up season one of Direct Appeal and audience go Check it out and listen to it. You're only hearing a piece of it. You, like, as you just heard Dr. Sack say that they had Melanie explaining that. I thought that was one of the coolest parts of the podcast is that we hear so much from her from prison. It's, it's really well done. And you guys have a season two in the works, if I'm not mistaken. We have season two and three in the works, believe it or not, um, which, yeah, what happened, uh, you know, it was, it's kind of an undertaking, but... Um, we hadn't planned on a season two, to be honest. We did this case. We weren't sure if this would be a one-off kind of thing. We started Women in Crime. But after uh, Melanie's case aired on 2020, we received a lot of requests for people to, uh, you know, for people asking us to review their cases. Can we review a loved one's case? And so we started looking into, we made a list and we started looking into all of them. And we kind of narrowed it down. I mean, based on the criteria, one of the the points that one of the criteria that had to be uh, established was that whoever was asking us to look into their case had to be willing, like Melanie was, to participate and to record with us. It had to be their story or their direct appeal to the public and to us. And so we found two cases that we could not decide between. But our season two is actually um, going, uh, you know, we, we found two cases, but the first one is the conviction of a young man, and I won't give it away completely, I'm not going to give away his name, but I can tell you what was so interesting about this case is that this one involved a possible no-crime conviction, wrongful conviction. And um, Bob, you probably know because, I mean, I know that you know, you've done a, a tremendous amount of work in the wrongful conviction area with Sandy Melger's case and other cases, but I wasn't aware of how common no-crime wrongful convictions were. I don't know if you know this, but one in three people who are wrongfully convicted, there's no crime that actually happened. I didn't. I, I I knew there was a lot of them. I didn't know it was that staggering of a number. I didn't either until we had Jessica Henry on our show. She wrote a book, Smoke No Fire, and she highlights some of these cases. And I was just, this was actually a revelation for me. And so we wound up taking a case and Direct Appeal Season 2 is going to center around a man who was convicted possibly in a case where no crime happened at all. Wow, that's that's exciting. Do you know when you're going to be launching season two? Yeah, we're we're recording right now with him and 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 other people. Then we'll record ourselves. I'm like trying to talk through the timeline. I couldn't tell you exactly <laughs> when, to be honest. Uh, I mean, we need you know a good couple of months, probably early summer. I would say early summer 2021. Oh yeah, definitely. T- it'll definitely be 2021. So whether it's we go early summer or maybe fall, that would be the only uh, difference. And then direct appeal three would be 2022. 
Well, that's great. I can't wait to hear season two. In the meantime, bingers, her name is Dr. Megan Sachs. The podcast is Direct Appeal. Make sure you check it out. It could be your next true crime binge. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate you having me on. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.